I was in the fourth or fifth grade when my mother took me to Washington, D.C. I'd never been on a trip like that, just me and one of my parents, so I knew it was special. We saw some amazing things on that trip, things I'd only seen in my social studies textbook. One of them was the National Cathedral, where we went on Easter morning. I had never been in a church that big, that grand, that amazing. The music was concert-worthy, and the liturgy was sublime, but the sheer volume of the space, a seemingly boundless expanse, transported me to another spiritual plane. In that holy communion, I experienced, as John Calvin might describe it, a heavenly encounter with the real Christ as my soul was transported even above the lofty heights of the cathedral's ceilings all the way up into God's presence. A dozen or so years later, I went to Rome for the first time and again felt my soul ascend into the heavens as I stepped inside St. Peter's Basilica. Feeling beneath my feet the place where thousands, where centuries of innumerable pilgrims had made their way to the center of Western Christianity, I looked up and admired that huge dome which had funneled all those prayers up to God. But I also saw in Rome different sorts of religious places, religious ruins. Ruins of places where prayers to Castor and Pollux and Saturn and a long list of deified emperors had long ago fallen silent. I saw throughout the city the relics of a fallen empire, and I perceived within those fractured columns and broken arches the same architectural features that I had seen a dozen or so years earlier as they boasted of imperial might in our nation's capital. What a difference 2,000 years makes, huh? Jesus didn't have to look quite that far into the future in order to behold the destruction of the Jerusalem temple that he envisions in this gospel lesson. The temple fell when the city was besieged in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' death. But his words about the temple were aimed not only at the building itself, but even more so at the institutional powers that were enshrined by that sacred structure. Not one stone will be left on top of another. On their way out of the temple that day, one of Jesus' disciples remarked at how large and impressive the stones and structures of the temple mount were. Indeed, they were impressive by any measure. An ancient rabbi wrote that one who has not seen the temple in its full splendor has never seen a beautiful building. Imagine then what that marvelous expanse of white marble and gold looked like to that disciple, a Galilean tradesman, a, a humble fisherman from way up north in the country. 
Imagine how easy it must have been to stand in that place and feel God's spirit tugging at your heart and mind and soul, lifting you upward. Yet in Jesus' mind, those magnificent stones were already scattered, lying crumbling on the ground. It is the prophet's role to stand in the courts of power and declare their emptiness and inevitable decline. It is the prophet who brings the sharp truth of God's word that the structures and symbols of earthly power must always give way to God's might. But it is the job of the faithful. It is our job to discern within those terrifying proclamations, a message of transcendent hope. Today's gospel lesson is a transitional passage in Mark's account of the good news. It comes after Jesus' lengthy teaching about the role of the temple in contemporary Jewish life. Jesus had already turned over the money changers' tables and questioned openly the authority of the religious leaders. He had used thinly veiled parables and clever scriptural techniques to expose the hypocrisy of the temple's authorities. As the disciples listened on, Jesus had laid out a host of reasons why the institutional religion of his day had let God and God's people down. But despite all that, as they left the temple precincts, one of those disciples just couldn't help himself. What large stones and large buildings, he remarked, overwhelmed by their splendor. Do you see these great buildings, Jesus asked in reply. Not one stone will be left on top of another. All will be thrown down. Those words were more than a prophetic rebuke or a prophetic prediction To announce the impending destruction of the temple was not only to threaten the structure, but everything that the structure represented. This building was God's house. It was the place where God dwelt to meet among God's people. To declare that one day it would lie in ruin was more than to critique the religious leaders. To those people who felt in that holy place an irreplaceable connection with their creator, that beautiful tug upward to heaven, to say that that temple would lie in ruin is like announcing that God would abandon God's people. Rebels and heretics had been killed for saying less. But what happens to God's people when those generational symbols of strength and comfort are threatened? What happens when the foundations upon which we have built our faith in God are laid waste? That's what we hear about in the second half of this gospel lesson when Mark links the destruction of the temple with those even greater forces that threaten all of us. It's that second part where Jesus gives us a glimmer of hope. A message of hope to those who have felt the sting of existential threat and corporate loss. Confused and troubled by these words, the disciples asked their teacher, when will this be? 
What will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And Jesus responded with a terrifying description of wars and rumors of wars, of nations rising against nation, of earthquakes and famine. But all of those things, he told them, are just the beginning of the birth pangs. What an important image Jesus used to describe all of that chaos and confusion birth pangs. These are not the last gasps of a dying people whose best days are behind them. These are the sharp labor pains of a people whose hopes are just being born. This is the future of a people whose broken symbols of earthly might are being torn down so that God might build in their place a new way of knowing God, of meeting God, of resting secure in God. Do not be alarmed, Jesus says to us. These things must take place, but the end is still to come. Sometimes when those symbols of power and strength begin to crack and crumble, it feels like God is abandoning us. Haven't all of us in recent months discovered new fault lines in even the most basic building blocks of our lives? But Jesus teaches us to recognize that they must all fall away if God's reign will take hold in our lives because we cannot know God's salvation until we are emptied of the pretense of clinging to our own security. Like the leaders of Jesus' day, we tend to confuse symbols of earthly strength, beauty, and majesty with the one those symbols are supposed to draw us closer to. And when those institutional structures we love so much are called into question by contemporary prophets, it feels like everything we've built our lives upon might crumble between our fingers. Oh, that it would, Jesus says. Jesus tells us to look forward to that day. Because if our hope is in anything of our own creation, then our future destruction is assured. But when those symbols of earthly power give way to what God has in store for us, then God can bring to us in their place a new hope, a new possibility. We are surrounded these days by symbols that that transformation is taking place. And Jesus is the one who is teaching us how to move beyond those symbols and structures that are familiar to us in order to know the real power of God's love. Jesus' death and resurrection have taught us how to recognize in our own losses and struggles signs of new life being born within us. As with any birth, that new life comes with pain and great difficulty, but it also comes with hope and promise. In the midst of all this conflict and strife, we stand at the cusp of something new and glorious. Do not be alarmed, Jesus says to us. These things must take place, but the end, the fulfillment of all things, it is yet to come. Thanks be to God. Amen.